following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Several years ago, I signed up for something that no longer exists. I'm very grateful for this fact. I signed up for something called a CD club, also known as a music club. And the way this would work is you would get a flyer in the mail or it'd be an advertisement in the back of a magazine. And the arrangement, if you sign up for this music club, is they will give you 12 CDs for one cent. Seen different versions of this. One is eight CDs for the cost of one or something like that. But the one I, I mean, when I saw 12 CDs for one cent, I'm like, okay, all right, let's just, let's just hold the phone here for a second. Okay, there's got to be something to this. So I, I knew, I knew that getting into this was going to be a mistake. Okay, I knew that signing up to be part of this music club, I, I knew I would regret it. But I read all the fine print, I read everything it said, it just said, sign up for this music club, you get 12 CDs right off the bat for one cent, and then over the course of the next year, you just have to buy two more CDs, and then, and, and then you can, at any time after that, you can quit, you don't have to be part of the music club anymore, and so I signed up. Now, I would like to ask you, so I'm feeling a little vulnerable up here telling you this, anyone else admit that you've signed up for a music club? Okay. <laughs> Virtually everyone in this room, almost. Okay. So I signed up for the club. I started looking through the CDs. You know, I, I saw, I mean, they were mediocre, the CDs. Okay, they weren't any that were unbelievable, but I saw like a 20-year-old U2 CD that I was like, okay, that's a, I don't have that one. So I got that one. I got several other ones, and I signed up for it. And then I'm like, all right, well, I mean, not to me, I'm part of a club now. I mean, I'm really a music lover. I can tell people, well, I'm in a music club, actually. I mean, it's... Something alluring about being in a club, okay? I'm in a club. I've got all, I got this huge load of CDs that come in the mail, okay? And I just have to buy two more CDs at some point throughout the year, which is a great investment for me to develop myself musically. So I know that this is an investment and I'll buy two more CDs. And so I wasn't going to let this go for very long. So it was like a, like a couple weeks later, I'm like, all right, I've got my CDs. Let's just buy the other two CDs and be done with it. And I went and I bought I went, on, uh, went to the mail, and I looked at, okay, how do I sign up for these CDs? And I go to buy the two final CDs, and then I realized how they can give me 12 CDs for one cent. They charge you $47 per CD that you buy throughout the rest of the year. Okay, so now I have to buy two CDs at the cost of about $47 a piece, and clearly they ship them from some other solar system, because the cost is like two gold bars and your firstborn child just to ship them to you. Okay, so that was my learning experience. I only signed up for a CD club or a music club once. And the problem was I signed up for something. I didn't really completely understand what I was signing up for. And maybe you've been in that circumstance, not just with a music club or a CD club. Maybe you've had that experience before. You've signed up for something. You thought you knew what you were getting into, but you didn't completely know what you were getting yourself into. Well, that applies in various parts of our life. And that actually includes 
the spiritual side of your life. That includes saying, all right, Jesus, I want to follow you. It it includes saying, all right, I'm going to get involved. I want to draw close to God. In fact, you may be here this morning and you may be like, look, I I don't know really where I'm at spiritually. I'm just, I'm kind of searching. I'm open to learning more about things spiritually. I want to know more about God. Or maybe like, look, no, I actually want specifically to know more about Jesus. And maybe you're here just asking those kind of questions. And that's great. I'm so glad that you're here. And especially with this passage that we're going to look at this morning, We're going to talk about knowing what you're signing up for, knowing what it means to follow after Jesus. But maybe you've been following after Jesus for a long time, and maybe recently you've been inspired or you've been challenged to start praying some more serious, dangerous prayers. In fact, we talked about that last week. We talked about praying more dangerous prayers of submission to God, where we just hold up our lives and say, God, Whatever you want to do with my life, you just show me. You show me. I want to be building what you're building. I want to be weeping for what you're weeping for. Help me to be, be, we ask this really kind of deep, big picture level question. What am I, how am I using my life for God? And maybe recently, you may have been following Jesus for 30 years, 40 years, but you said, you know what, I'm asking another level of question. I want to get to another level of submitting my life to Jesus. Well, that's where you're at. This is a great passage for us to delve into because it helps us know, okay, what is that then, what is that going to look like when we say, God, I'm ready to do whatever you want me to do, and he says, okay, then follow after me. What is that going to look like? We're looking in the story of Nehemiah. We're going to be looking in uh, at the end of chapter one. We're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, last week, Nehemiah chapter 1. It's going to be on the screens. It's also in your bulletins. Um, And if you have a Bible, you can turn there, or a Bible app, you can turn there. Now, let me just give you a little background on the story of Nehemiah. If you weren't able to join us last week, or just a little reminder about this story. Um, Just to kind of place this story in history, this is happening about 445 B.C., thereabouts, 445 B.C. So to kind of place that in history, somewhere over in Greece, Socrates is about 20, 25 years old. He's running around starting to think about philosophy. Okay, that's about where we're at in, this, in history, okay? At this time, Persia is the superpower of the world. The Persian Empire rules most of the known world. And in about 90 years from now, there's going to be a guy named Alexander the Great who's going to show up and he's going to change that pretty significantly. But right now, Persia is the superpower, And the story is about a guy named Nehemiah, and he's actually a servant. He actually works in the palace of the Persian king, so he's right in the midst of it. And right now, what makes him interesting is he's a Jewish man, but he has this high level. He's in really kind of a high position as a servant. And the the reason for that circumstance is about 150 years before Nehemiah, uh, the Jewish people were living in Judah, of course, in Jerusalem, and Babylon conquered them and took, just ransacked Jerusalem, leveled it, and took a huge portion of these Jewish people back into their Babylonian empire. Shortly after that, the Persians took over the, the control. They conquered Babylon, took over control of the world, and you've got these pockets of Jewish people, but they're living in now Persia. They're not in their home. They're not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is ransacked. It's just, it's leveled. So God places it in this Persian king's heart to start sending groups of these Jewish people back to their homeland to kind of rebuild. 
And about 13 years before we pick up this, with this story in Nehemiah, about 13 years before, God sent this group of people back, or this Persian king, God through this Persian king, sent this group of people back to Jerusalem along with this guy named Ezra. And his whole story, you can read about that in the Bible as well. And Ezra takes these people back, and they start by rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. So we opened up the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah knows some people that have just returned from, from Judah, and he says, hey, what's going on there? You can imagine these, the Jewish people that are still in the Persian Empire are wondering, okay, what's happened? They just went back. They're starting to rebuild things. Are they safe? You know, this was just rubble. What's going on? And they report back to Nehemiah. They say, well, man, we just got back from there, and we've got to tell you, it's bad. It is not a good situation in Jerusalem right now. They said the biggest problem is the walls are leveled, the gates are burned. In other words, these people are completely vulnerable. It is a very, very dangerous place right now. At any moment, they have, are left with no protection. At any moment, an army or a militia or just a group of bandits could run through, could ransack the place, pillage the place, could kill them, could take them captive. I mean, it, in fact, as they're talking, for all they know, the people they just left have maybe already been destroyed. I mean, it is a very vulnerable place. And Nehemiah hears that, and we talked about last week, he wasn't just upset. He wept and he mourned. And the reason is because, I mean, this has really no direct connection to his life. But we learn through his, as we see his prayers, that he is a follower of God. He loves God. He knows that God has a plan through his people, through Israel, to save the world. He knows that God is going to send a Messiah through Israel on a rescue mission to save the world. And right now, with Jerusalem broken down and the, and the Jewish people that are back there in danger of being wiped out, that plan looks like it's broken down, that it's hanging on by a thread, and Nehemiah is weeping and mourning for the situation. So he's praying to God, he's praying that God would do something, and then in his prayers in chapter 1, it switches gears in verse 11. And we read this last week, but let's recap. Nehemiah verse one, chapter 1, verse 11. It says this, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Now look at this. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now, here's what I love about this verse. Right off the bat, he's been praying, God, he, earlier in his prayers, like, God, would you do something? Would you just, I, I remember how you promised that you would bring your people back to Israel and that you would, if we would turn back to you, you would reestablish your name in Israel. And he's just praying that God would do something. But then the prayer turns in verse 11. And do you notice what he says? He kind of changes it a little bit. He doesn't just say, God, you do something. He said, God, Grant me success today as I do something. Did you catch that? He's saying, God, please, would you rise up and would you do something? But then he says, grant me success today in the eyes of this man. He says, God, now as I try and take a step and try and do something in this mess, he says, please, would you have your hand on me? Would you use me in the eyes of this man? And it's interesting, he says, today. I'm going to do something today today about this situation. 
What I love is you see Nehemiah, he doesn't just pray, he's not just mourning and broken, broken. he says, I'm, gonna, I'm enlisting. He says, I'm in. I'm signing up. I'm enlisting. I want to be a part of the solution. God, give me favor and sight of this man today. Now, who is this man? Who is this man that Nehemiah wants to have favor in the sight of? Well, he tells us in that last line, this is how he closes chapter one. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. And we learn about his role in the palace. We learn actually what kind of servant that he is in the palace, and his role is the cupbearer. This is a very unique and interesting role. Um, it's not unique to Persia. Uh, empires from all throughout antiquity have this kind of role. Assyrians, even uh, kings in Israel, Egyptians had this role of cupbearer. And essentially what this person would do is he would serve the wine to the king. Now you say, well, that's kind of, I mean, all right, so he's a, he's a server, he's a waiter. I mean, that's, what's the big deal? It's actually a very, very big deal. I want you to think, place yourself in one of the, in the kind of the court of one of these palaces. And I want you to think about the dynamics in a palace like this. You've got this king, he's the ruler of the known world, the most powerful man on the planet. You couldn't find a single person on today's planet that has the type of authority and power that this Persian king would have. It just doesn't exist with the politics of today's world. He had power unlike the world maybe had ever seen. Now I want you to think about that. I want you to think about all of his brothers, half-brothers, uncles, Maybe his, his mother's stepmothers wants you to think of his sisters and half-sisters. And he's got multiple wives. He's got concubines. He's got cousins. And I want you to think about all the dynamics that you can just imagine swirling around in this palace, in this court. I want you to think, I mean, you've seen um, the, the show, the reality show Survivor. All these alliances happening behind the scenes. These like, you know, these back channel conversations, people betraying each other, okay? And what are the stakes? The stakes are for a game. This is for the power in the world. And the stakes are life and death. In fact, just to kind of give you an idea of the dynamics, some historians said if you're the Persian king, you never had a good night's sleep. You're always looking at people and you're wondering, why are they nice to me? Why is this person doing that? And why are they talking over there? And, and what's this person? And they have an alliance, but they're betraying each other. And this is just, this palace is going to be pulsing constantly, pulsing with conspiracy and politicking and positioning and pulsing with paranoia. Nobody really trusts each other. Nobody, and there's, there's assassinations happening, and there's, you know, there's weird accidents happening, and people are dying, and someone just got sick, and why don't they like each other, but now they like each other. I mean, you can just imagine, this place is just pulsing with paranoia. If you're a king, you never know who you can trust. Even your own family, even your own spouses, you never know who you can trust. It's probably an extremely lonely existence. You think of, man, what would it have been like to be that king? Horrible. Horrible. It is a terrible existence. You're waiting, you're waiting to be assassinated at any moment. Now, all throughout antiquity, there is one type of assassination they feared the most. It was poisoning. 
absolutely the way of assassination that was the most common, the way they feared the most. Here's why. Because it's one thing to go in and try and attack a king physically. A, you may lose. You may get caught. may get messy. But man, if you could just set up a little conspiracy, put something in his drink, and all of a sudden he gets sick and dies, how could they ever trace that back to you? Especially without modern forensics. How would they ever trace? Just be completely... They'd totally be, skeptic, be completely a, a guessing game as to who poisoned them. The way that they, the single type of assassination they feared the most and was the most common was poisoning. Enter the cupbearer. One of the most important servants in the entire king's household because he's the one that's serving the wine. And in fact, often they would taste it in front of the king before they serve it to the king. So you didn't just find someone and put him in that role. This person had to be someone that was very much trusted. And you can imagine, this was a a high position. This was a a role that was trusted, but it was a servant role. Now here's uh, interesting. The the, uh, Greek historian, his name is uh, Xenophon. He actually had observed Persian cupbearers and the way they did it. This is like a lot of pomp and circumstance. I mean, you imagine if, you're, if you went to Buckingham Palace to just visit with the royalty, you'd have to be trained ahead of time for what you do in the palace because there's, there's, all, there's all these kind of rituals and things that happen. And it's the same with palaces throughout antiquity. So there's all this pomp and circumstance around this king. Well, here's actually, you can kind of get an idea of what Nehemiah's job looked like because here's a description of a Persian cupbearer from the Greek historian about that time. He said, now the cupbearers of those kings, talking about Persian kings, have an exquisite way of serving the wine. They pour it without spilling a drop, and they present the cup with three fingers. They proffer the cup up on the tips of their fingers and offer it in the most convenient position for the drinker to take hold of it. So that's Nehemiah's job. He comes in with these, this ornate pitcher, comes in with this ornate cup, and he pours some. In fact, I, I, as the historians say, they actually they would pour it into their hand, and they would drink it first right in front of the king. And they would pour it perfectly in the cup. I mean, you did not spill a drop. You are in the most, pow- the most powerful man in the world. You're in his presence. There's a lot of, of ritual here, and they're pouring it without spilling a drop. I mean, this probably took practice. And they have a certain way that they hand it to the king in the most convenient way for him to take it. So I want you to get the dynamics of his relationship with the king. He may be very trusted, but this is not a casual relationship. Okay, like when they're both like watching the Super Bowl, they're not texting each other, you know, back and forth. Okay, this is not a casual relationship that they have. He may be a trusted servant, but he probably doesn't say a word. He probably hands it to the king and makes his way out. That's his one job, serving the wine. And it's one of the most important jobs in the palace. So here's what we have. We have a cupbearer. Now here's the interesting thing. You think about the role of a cupbearer and you think about the fact that this is a Jewish Jewish man, a God-fearing man, but that's his role? That's a messy job to be in. I want you to think of this as just a man who's trying to be as godly as possible. Talk about a messy job. Can you imagine the things he was exposed to and witnessed in this palace of this pagan king who had ultimate authority? you imagine the things that he witnessed and was exposed to? 
I mean, the banquets of these Persians were, were legendary. They would say, in fact, they would have so much food and their, their drinking, their rule was there are no restrictions when it comes to drinking. And that's Nehemiah's job. He's got to just keep giving the king wine and he's witnessing what's happening at these banquets. He's witnessing all this stuff. I mean, can you imagine trying to be a godly person and working in the messiness of that palace? The things that he has to see and be exposed to and he knows what's going on. The things he has to participate in that he wished he didn't have to participate in. This is messy. This is not an easy job for a godly person to be in. He's a cupbearer. He's one of the few in the world that are in the king's presence regularly. Now we might see that and say, man, look at what God's done. This is perfect. You've got broken walls over in Jerusalem. And he's planted this Jewish man right there in the king's presence. This is perfect. Maybe you're already thinking, I can already see what God's going to do. He's going to use all the influence that Nehemiah has to do something positive for Jerusalem. That might be what our instinct to see that, but I can pretty much guarantee you that's not what Nehemiah was thinking. He's probably thinking, oh, Lord, what can I do? I'm not a wall builder. I don't know anything about that. I do one thing. I serve the wine without spilling it. That's my job. In fact, I just try and not get executed. I mean, I'm just trying to survive. Okay, I serve the wine. Okay, go back. Okay, live to see another day. I have a really simple job. I don't say anything. I don't probably, he probably doesn't even look at the king. In fact, there are some uh, Persian reliefs. There's these sculptures where they show servants and they're, they're standing before the king like this. And some historians say that Persian kings would have their servants cover their faces like this so that they wouldn't defile the king by breathing on him. Nehemiah's like, I, I mean, what can I do? I'm just, I serve the wine and get out of there and try and live to see another day. What could I possibly do? But I want you to see his resolve. He says, God, use me somehow. Even though I'm uh, today, as far as, as far as it's speaking today, I'm just a cupbearer. But use me somehow. Use me today, Lord. Slip over to chapter 2 and see what happens in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now pause there for a second. I want you to notice the first thing that that section says is it tells us what month it is. And this is so instructive for us. At the opening of the book in chapter 1, it said it was the month of Kislev. That's late fall, maybe like November. It's the month of Kislev, and he said, and and notice what he says, he hears this news, he's praying, he says, God, use me today, and it says, this happened in the month of Nisan, which is now, this is now in the spring, probably like March. So here, back in about November, you've got Nehemiah saying, God, use me today in the sight of this man, and what happened? Did God give him favor that day? Nope. 
All right, well, maybe it's tomorrow. God, can you use me today? Just please use me. I've got to do something. God, you know they could already be destroyed over there in Jerusalem. Please, I don't know what to do. I'm just, I just serve the wine. Can you just do something today? Can you use me today? Did he use him on day two? No. All right, Lord, just sometime this week, please, before the week is out, would you please do something? Use me. Week, end of the week, did he use him? No. What about next week? No. When November comes to a close, now it's into December. He's like, God, please, what, why are you waiting? Please do something. You know that any moment they could all be destroyed, Lord. And, and even if I get the green light now, it's going to take me months to get there and months to build these walls. It's going to take so long. Lord, we don't have time. Can you use me? December ends. January comes. I don't know, maybe he lost heart. He stopped praying. Or maybe he kept on praying. I, I kind of think the fact that he said, and we don't know exactly when, he said, use me today. And then the next line he says is it was actually March and before God answered that prayer. See, I kind of think he woke up every day. I said, okay, God, today's the day. Use me today. And then the next day, Lord, make it today, please. You know I'm serving the wine to him today. And maybe at this banquet, there's going to be a banquet and there's going to be a, a chance with all the festivities that maybe he, he, somehow we get in this conversation, maybe use me today. And it was day after day after day. And I, I think kind of what this, the text is telling us is he prayed every day. Today is the day, Lord, use me today. And it was four months later that he had to wait. I want you to see how this plays out. He says, now let me tell you something. He says, you got to know I was not sad in his presence. The reason he probably wasn't sad in his presence is he might be executed by being sad in his presence. I mean, imagine, you're the king, you're constantly terrified, you're waiting for someone to poison you, and you've got like a, your cupbearer is the one, you want the cupbearer to have a smile on his face when he's serving you wine. Everything's fine, buddy, drink up. You know that he's going to come in. He's going to be like, here you go. Everything's okay. And all of a sudden he says, I promise you, I, did not have, I was not sad in his presence. In fact, uh, you've got to know, if you are executed in Persian times, it's not going to be something as nice as beheading. Okay, the, the Assyrians before, there's the Babylonians and the, and the Assyrians before them. The Assyrians were brutal. They were very imaginative in the way they tortured and killed people. The Babylonians were just as imaginative, and then the Persians said, we'll just take some of all of it, and we'll use some of all of it. They had specific ways. In fact, when it comes to poisoning, they had specific ways they executed people who did assassination attempts through poisoning. And I'm not even going to tell you, it was not pretty. So Nehemiah, when he walks in and the king says, you look sad, and you don't look sick, so there's something going on in your heart. And he says, I was very afraid. You've got to read the intensity of that. He's not like, oh, this is my, my moment. I'm nervous. He's like, oh, I might be tortured and executed now. He's saying, I am terrified. I have realized. And he says, I wasn't sad. Something happened where the king saw it. He's like, it had to be a God moment. And so you can see, and you see his wise leadership in this. He says, oh, king, live forever. He goes through the custom. He's like, I'm still loyal to you. Okay, I love you, buddy. Oh, king, live forever. And he says, why would I not be sad when the city of my forefathers lies in ruins? See, now we hear the second reason why he was probably terrified. It's not just that his facial expression and his emotional state could get him in trouble in the king's presence. It's that actually what he's actually sad about might just get him executed also. Because what if the king says, okay, wait a minute. You're in my presence, but you're sad about another kingdom? So you have a loyalty to another kingdom? So let me ask you a question, Nehemiah. If, if you were faced with a situation where you could do something good for that kingdom, but it would mean poisoning me, which would you choose? 
See, now Nehemiah knows this is a bad situation. You have got to, man, we read this and we can see the courage that it took. And then the king says, what are you requesting? And I love what he does next. Hey, can we have a meeting in the uh, conference room over there? It's got a PowerPoint presentation. I'd love to take you through this here, king. And Step by step, I've got a whole flow, Excel spreadsheet for you to look at. You know what he does? He prays. In the back of his mind, he's having a conversation this way, and he's having a conversation this way. And on the spot, he prays. Now, what he's going to say next, I'm going to leave you hanging this week. <laughs> what he says next, you're going to have to read it on your own. What he says next, we're going to look at next week, it shows you the kind of leader this man is. It shows you that, I mean, this a leadership principles, it shows you. But I want you, let's just stop this, this morning and I want you to look at what we see from Nehemiah because there's something so powerful here. He's burdened for a wall that's hundreds, maybe thousands of miles away. It's in disrepair. And he says, God, use me. And what does he say next? Use me, God. And he says, now. For right now, here's where I'm at. Right now, I'm a cupbearer. Would you use me? I serve wine. That's all I do. I make sure he doesn't get poisoned. I don't even talk to him. I probably don't even look at him. I don't even breathe on him. I serve him the wine in the fancy way they train me, and I don't spill a drop or I could get killed, and I just serve the wine, and I back out and bow. That's my whole job. It's not, it, it sounds fancy, and I know that I, they trust me and everything to do this job, but in the end, I serve wine. That's all I do. He says, I was a, he says but use me. Right now, I'm a cupbearer. Now, this is so helpful for us. Last week, here's what we talked about. We said, Are we willing to have the heart that Nehemiah has? What does Nehemiah want to build? He wants to build something that God's building. We said, look what he's weeping for. Is he weeping for his career, his comfort, his safety? No, he's going to risk all of those things. He's weeping for what God's weeping for. And we asked ourselves a dangerous question last week. We said this big picture, deep down question, what am I spending my life building? What am I building? Am I building my own? Am I building my own wealth? Am I building my own career? Am I building my own safety? Am I building a pleasurable life, a comfortable life? What is it that I'm really building? And we said, let's pray together a dangerous prayer this week where we say, God, whatever you want me to build, that's what I'll do. And see, here's what happens sometimes when we pray that prayer. If this week you prayed that prayer, or if you've ever prayed that prayer, here is a danger that we so often fall into that we see in this chapter Nehemiah didn't fall into. Sometimes the answer, we think the answer to that prayer is going to be repositioning rather than recalibrating. I want you to stay with me on this. Sometimes we pray, God, I want to live a life that's worthy of, of the calling of Jesus Christ. I want to, whatever it takes, God, use me. And sometimes what our instinct is, we're expecting that means that he's going to reposition us rather than just simply recalibrate our brains. We think he's going to reposition us. So we prayed that prayer this week. Maybe you got up early Monday morning and you're journaling, God, I'm serious. I know this is what I'm doing with my life, but for, for real this time, I want to spend my life building what you want me to build. And so then maybe you started asking this question. Do I need to leave my job? Do I need to move somewhere? 
Is he calling me into the, maybe into vocational ministry? Am I supposed to work at the church? Am I supposed to go be a, a missionary? Or you know what? You know what? I'm going to work till retirement, and then when I'm retired, then I'll do something. Or, well, what can I do now? I want to do that, but I'm in school right now. Maybe when I'm out of school. Or, or you know what? I, I, I want to work for God one day when I own my own business. I'm working in a business, but if I could own my own business, I could do all this kinds of stuff that, that I could do. Or one day if I was in charge, right now I'm not in charge, but if I was in charge, then I could do incredible things for, for God. We say, you know what, right now I'm, I'm single, but if I was married then, or you know, if once we have kids, or once I just get through this season, God, just help me get through this season. And we think in terms of being used by God as repositioning rather than just simply recalibrating. Can I tell you something? God didn't just put that burden on your heart to do something radical and impacting for God. He didn't put that on your heart in your heart, at the wrong season of life. That burden he put on your heart intersects exactly into the season of life you're in right now. He didn't make a mistake. He's not making a mistake. He's he's not saying, okay, yeah, I'm putting this burden and one day when you've retired, then you're going to serve me. One day when you're through this tough season, then you're going to serve me. One day when you're through this trial, then you're going to serve me. One day when you're in charge or you own the business or you do this or do that, then you're going to serve me. He says, no, I put this on your heart right now. I want you to serve right now. See, we've got to have the spirit that Nehemiah said. God, I don't know what in the world I'm supposed to do. I serve wine. That's it. I have the, I, I have the most minimal job. I go in like this, didn't spill a drop again, handed it to the king, and I walked out. See, what we have to have is the spirit of Nehemiah and say, God, I'm so burdened, but for right now, use me right now, use me today, and I look down at my feet. I don't look down the road. I look down at my feet and say, okay, now I work in the fire station. I work in law enforcement. I work at this school. I'm in middle management. I'm at a school. I'm in that transition job waiting for my career to start. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Right now, I'm in this season, and I'm a couple years before retirement. I'm at the, uh, I feel like I'm landing the plane. Right now, I'm in, the, I'm in the fourth quarter of life where I'm just getting started. I just have to look down and say, okay, for now, I'm a cupbearer. And I've got to believe you did that on purpose. So God, use me today. We can't fall in the danger when we ask a big thing like that and say, God, use me. We can't fall in the danger in thinking, all right, he'll use me when I'm repositioned. Nehemiah must have thought that. All right, so I'm a cupbearer, so maybe I just quit my job. I escape out of the palace. I'll, I'll go and I'll study on building walls, and then I'll go build a wall. No, he said, no, I, you put this burden on me. Here's where I am at. I'm a cupbearer, so today use me as a cupbearer. That's the way God wants to use you. We don't know where we're going to end up, but you know where to start. You start today right where you're at. See, when it comes to recalibrating our thinking, here's what you've got to know. When it comes to being a Christ follower, we use the word um, mathetes. It's the original Greek word for someone who's following after Christ. And we use that original word because we're trying to get back to that all-in following of Jesus. And so we use the word mathetes, and we want to become a mathetes, each of us as individuals and together as a church. Every mathetes... Every single one, every Christian, every Christ follower, every single mathetes is a missionary. Do you realize you're a missionary? It's just that God has way, way more undercover missionaries. 
than vocational missionaries. That's the way he likes it. He's got this huge army of Christians all over the world. And the vast majority of his warriors are undercover. But they're missionaries. And we look down our feet. You say, you are a cupbearer missionary. You are, you are a stay-at-home mom missionary. You are a missionary in the business that you go to. You're a missionary in the position that you're at, in the school that you're at. You're, uh, you're a missionary in the neighborhood that you're at. Just look down at your feet and say, okay, God, this is where I start. But see, there's three things that when we signed up and enlisted to follow after Jesus, there were three things. When we, when we prayed that dangerous dangerous prayer, there's three things that made us instinctively think, well, it can't be this. He must be about ready to reposition me. There's three things I want to share with you quickly this morning. The first one is doldrums. Let me tell you about doldrums. Doldrums is a nautical term that it's a part of the ocean right around the equator where the weather patterns are ju- happen in just a certain way that the wind just stops. And historically, sailors would dread the doldrums. And they would dread the doldrums sometimes even more than the storms. Because they would go sailing into this. Remember, this is before they had motors and stuff and they had engines and they'd go sailing in and all of a sudden they'd hit the doldrums. And can you imagine just seeing ocean in every direction and it's just eerily calm. It's like glass hundreds of miles in every direction and no wind. And you're right on the equator, so you're just sitting there, just floating, not moving, and the sun is baking you day after day after day. And all you know is that your supplies are running out, and you're not moving and can't move. In fact, even modern day, I talked to a friend of mine who's um, he's a, a, a boat captain for many years, and he talked about even modern day people sailing through there on, on, uh, on sailboats say, it is miserable. You dread it. And when you get to that and it's just calm and you're not moving, it's painful. Christians, sometimes we're more prepared for the storms than the doldrums. And let me prepare you. Here's what you're signing up for when we sign up for saying, I'm following after you. Use this life. I want to ring it out. I want to follow after you. A lot of times, this will absolutely include a season of doldrums. On this adventure, part of the great adventure you're going on with God, part of the adventure is it will be calm and you're like, God, what in the world are you doing? I'm not moving anywhere and it's just painful and I feel like I'm running out of, it's sometimes harder to just stay still. Nothing's happening. Where's the adventure? Where's the impact? Where's the influence? It's just day after day after day after day and it's more of the same. It's just painful boredom. And you know what's great is you see Nehemiah went through the same thing. God, use me today, and he served the wine and nothing. Use me today, and he served the wine again and nothing. And God said, wait on my timing. And he prayed, okay, today, Lord, today, today. Do do it today. Four months he waited. And some seasons, it's so much longer than that. How about Moses? Do you know from the get-go, Moses knew he'd deliver his people? It says that in Hebrews. He knew from the beginning he would deliver his people. And God said, but not yet. You need to go out in the wilderness and learn how to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then you go back. And there's a couple months where he's before Pharaoh and things are happening. The Nile's turning to blood and he's throwing his staff down and there's a snake and there's plagues and there's the Mount Sinai and he's getting tablets and breaks those and has to get more tablets up on the mountain. I mean, it's this crazy adventure for a couple months. And then what does he do for the last 40 years of his life? Wandering around in the wilderness. 
he had to learn how to tend sheep in the wilderness because he would be leading God's sheep in the wilderness. Can you know part of the adventure is doldrums, but that doesn't mean you're in the wrong spot? You just got to recalibrate and say, okay, God, this is, I've got to wait on your timing, and I promise you, God never operates in your timing. And it's almost always more slow than you'd like it. Here's the second one. I want to hit this one quickly. Sometimes it's just the second reason. First one is doldrums, but sometimes we think of repositioning because we feel like what we're doing is so ordinary. But you know, that's got to be what Nehemiah thought. I serve wine. What am I doing? And sometimes we think that serving the Lord, it has to be, I'm doing something huge and romantic and all these crazy things that I'm doing. And if I'm not overseas drilling wells or helping the poor or running an orphanage, or if I'm, if I'm not doing all these things, sometimes it's just waking up and serving the Lord and it feels so ordinary. It doesn't feel powerful. But here's what you're forgetting. It's not what we're doing that's so powerful. It's what God is doing through our ordinary acts that are so powerful. See, when I'm like, God, what I'm doing is just so ordinary. I'm just loving on my kids and trying to, trying to, to build my marriage and try and do the best I can at work and wait for an opportunity to share the gospel. And God's like, when did you think it was your powerful actions that were going to make an impact? He's saying, I'm the one that's going to work through your ordinary actions and do things you can't even imagine. He says, in a billion years from now, when you're in eternity, you'll never know the power what I did through you. Maybe then you'll finally realize all that I was working through, all your ordinary actions. Just remember, recalibrating is realizing God takes your ordinary and he does powerful things through it. And there's a third thing. Sometimes we think about repositioning because we look at the job around us and it's so messy. God, I want to be a follower of you, but look at this. This is so messy. How is a Christian supposed to work in this environment? Do you realize what I'm exposed to all every day? You know, it's just around me. I, I feel like I'm working at this company. I'm participating in messy things. You, know, you wonder how many times Nehemiah thought that? Like, it's so messy. But if you pull out and God repositions you out of the darkness and out of the messiness, then who's going to bring the light into that dark world? You're right where you need to be, Christian. You're in the mess. You're in the darkness. And God's going to guide you through on how to make an impact right there in the messiness and the darkness of where he's placed you. And you know how we know that? Because what's the story of that Messiah that would come one day to save the world? It's God entering into the messiness of this world. The incarnation, which means God in the flesh, God put on flesh like a man, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ, walking around in the sin and messiness of this world. If God didn't stand back and say, no, that's too messy, I need to stay in my holy heaven, then we can imagine, okay, maybe we do that too. But no, God entered into the mess. He showed up in the midst of the darkness and he was a light. And he dies on the cross, suffers and sacrifices and dies and bleeds on a cross to pay for our sins. And he's saying, so take up your cross, enter into the darkness and the mess, and get building. Don't think about, well, I'll do it then, I'll do it down the road. Look down at your feet and say, you're, this is where you're at now. I, you don't know where you're going to be, but you know where you're at tomorrow. And begin building tomorrow, right where you're at. Some of you are here this morning and you need to just actually begin 
that journey. And you need to realize what God did to save you. Jesus dying on the cross, realize that was for you. That's how he's rescuing the world. That's how he's rescuing you personally. You may say, no, I'm very far away from God and I've got all this sin in my life. And he's saying, no, all that Jesus paid for on the cross, he washed you clean by paying for your sins. And he rose again from the dead. After he died on the cross, he rose again from the dead saying, it's finished. Now you, can, you will also rise again and live in eternity in heaven. Maybe this morning it's your time. It's your time to say, you know what? I want to be a mathetase. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. And if that's you, I want to give you an opportunity to accept that truth this morning. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If that's you, I want you to just simply pray this prayer right there in your seat. Just simply say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me on the, on the cross. Thank you for entering into the mess of this world, paying for my sins. You came and found me. And God, now I know you're calling me to enter into the mess of this world and take the truth of the gospel and be a light no matter what you're calling me to do. But thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.